Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, is, as is traditional. We'll hear from the economist Max Sawicki and why the Postal Service is so troubled and what we might do to rescue it. And we'll hear from the historian and securities analyst Kelly Grotke about the financial crisis in U.S. higher education. Dining hall workers being fired while private equity guys make billions running the endowments. A few words about the economic situation. Although this show was originally prepared for broadcast on Thursday, October 1st, because of some technical difficulties now resolved, I didn't unleash it for wider distribution until the weekend. So now I can say a few things about the September employment report that was released on Friday morning. The report is a composite of two surveys, one of employers, hundreds of thousands of them, and one of households, about 60,000 of them. The employer survey shows that we now have regained just over half the jobs lost between February and April, but the pace of gains slowed for the third consecutive month. Sectors that added the most jobs included retail trade and bars and restaurants, both of which have been savaged by COVID-19 closures. But government employment, particularly state and local government education, lost over 200,000 workers. Looking over the longer term, few sectors are anywhere near recovering the losses of March and April, despite consistent gains since May. Continuing a theme, retail and bars and restaurants have regained a substantial portion of lost jobs. Retail about 80% and bars and restaurants just over 60. Construction has also done better than average, also just over 60%. But several major sectors are lagging. Transportation, warehousing, information, finance, professional and business services, and education. The survey of households was less impressive than that of employers. Almost 700,000 people left the labor force. That's not what we'd be seeing in a stronger recovery. And although the unemployment rate fell half a point to 7.9%, the underlying details are not encouraging. More of the jobless reported themselves as permanent job losers, as opposed to being on temporary layoff, suggesting that while many furloughed workers are going back, some employers may be giving up hope for the long term. We're also seeing a rise in the share of unemployed who've been out of work for six months or more. So while there's been significant recovery for some workers, it's looking like we're developing a serious long-term unemployment problem for others. Without fiscal support, gains are going to be harder to come by as the weather cools and the virus keeps causing trouble. Okay, enough of me. Now on to the guests. First, the Postal Service. Louis DeJoy, the Trump loyalist running this essential and wildly popular public service, has gotten a lot of attention for junking sorting machines and slowing down the mail. Those are bad enough, but the problems are deeper and longer standing than DeJoy's perverse innovations. What's going on? For more, let's turn to the economist Max Sawicki. Max, now retired from the Government Accountability Office, and before that, the Economic Policy Institute, has a new paper on the topic published by the Center for Economic and Policy Research, which you can find on their website, cepr.net. Max Sawicki. The post office under DeJoy has gotten a lot of attention, but uh, this is only the culmination of a, a problem long in the making. A good bit of the problem can be summarized by the idea that uh, the post office should be run like a business, right? But uh, should it be? My argument is it's what economists call a public good, which means that its benefits all told exceed the revenue it could collect from direct sales of services to customers. So from that standpoint, the right solution is to have it be uh, publicly financed with 
tax money, whatever tax money is needed to uh, supplement the user fees it gains from selling stamps and shipping packages and whatnot. Historically, the institution has really never run like a business. It's a huge misconception. I mean, from the beginning, there were different costs of delivering to different areas. So you had implicit cross-subsidies, namely uh, people in rural, thinly settled areas uh, had effective discounts on the cost of delivering to them. And uh, they were subsidized by people in more densely populated areas. The cross-subsidies were embedded from the get-go. So the idea that it ever has or could run like a business is really debunked by that. If it was run like a business, you would see higher charges for delivery by distance. You would see uh, the end of six-day delivery, Saturdays. You would see uh, a lot of facilities closed because they're not as busy as uh, other facilities. So if it was run on a self-financing business basis, uh, it would look very different. The package business there could uh, be basically swallowed up by Amazon, which is expanding its package delivery uh, by leaps and bounds. Yeah, now Trump, of course, fulminates uh, about uh, an alleged subsidy to Amazon. His main uh, reason for this may just be because Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post and he hates the Washington Post. But in any case, is there any validity to Trump's complaints about Amazon? I don't think so. The, uh, I mean, as things stand, the, I mean, Amazon could outsource to the post office if it wanted to, instead of delivering itself. If it was, if the post office rates for Amazon were such a great deal, then why would Amazon build its own uh, shipping service? Doesn't make sense. One explanation for the troubles of the postal service is the that email is rendered first class mail pretty much obsolete. The volume of first class mail is way down. Uh, how true is that? No, there's no question about that. The first-class mail was historically the service's most profitable service, and uh, it's decreased by a lot, and we could presume replaced by email. And uh, my argument there is that the service really could be expanding in new areas, potentially recovering some revenue, but it's been constrained in that. And historically, it's always been. I mean, originally the service, it owned the first telegraph, it subsidized uh, railways, it subsidized the aviation business, uh, and it was kept out of expanding in those areas by private sector companies. Early in U.S. history, uh, they built a lot of the roads, too. Yes, the communications, what, what we could call our communications infrastructure subsidized our transportation infrastructure because you had communities that wanted to lobby for mail service. And they were told, well, if you want mail, you've got to have a passable road to where you are. So in effect, the availability of mail and package delivery stimulated the growth of the uh, of roads and also, as I said, railroads and aviation and really was, uh, according to what I've read, uh, a big factor in the, gr- the growth of the U.S. economy over, over 200 years. Now, when uh, the telegraph uh, arrived in the scene, uh, some of the European post offices took it up as a monopoly, right? The first telegraph was owned by the service, was in the post office department. And uh, the inventor, Samuel Morse, 
offered to actually sell it to the government for a hundred thousand dollars and was, uh, that was rejected. And the service abandoned the telegraph. And of course it was taken up by private sector companies. And that was one of the, the major examples of where it was a logical way for it to expand and, uh, build on itself. And the combination of, uh, financing constraints, the idea that it should uh, be self-financing, and the, of course, frenzy lobbying of private sector interests, basically stymied logical places that the uh, post office department could expand into, including telegraph, telephone, and, of course, in modern times, uh, the Internet. There's no reason why the, the post office department could have, or now the Postal Service could uh, take a role in provision of uh, internet services instead of these uh, rapacious tech monopolies that we're forced to live under. Now, if you listen to uh, Republicans or even you know some business-friendly Democrats, the problem is monopoly, and uh, what we need in this uh, this field is, is is competition. What is the argument for the post office uh, being a natural monopoly? Well, I mean, there's evidence of it. <laughs> if it if it was cheaper for these other companies to deliver what what's called the last mile, which is the relatively well-traveled routes to individual destinations, individual houses and firms, then uh, they would do it themselves instead of outsourcing to the postal service. So the, there's a competitive advantage in having a, a system where uh, you have 30-something thousand facilities all over the country, and you have somebody visit everybody's house every day or six days a week now. Uh, and that the marginal cost of an extra delivery for that system is relatively low. If we want to talk about economic efficiency, which I spend a good deal of time on in my report, uh, you don't want the charges for that marginal delivery to cover total costs. That would unduly restrict output and uh, end up with a higher than advisable price. So the, the role here for a, a natural monopoly, which resides, I would argue, in that last mile, which is not really that controversial uh, in the literature, uh, is that it should be uh, maintain is that, and uh, it should be permitted to charge prices that do not cover total costs, even costs narrowly defined. The problem with monopoly from an efficiency standpoint is they charge too much and they produce too little. So the direction for efficient pricing in that context is to push prices lower and accept the uh, overall losses and fill those losses with external funds. That would be the efficient economic solution. It, it's not to uh, throw the whole thing over into the private sector and end up with a much less efficient uh, array of contending delivery services covering that same last mile. And of course, in many cases, uh, if it was thrown into the private sector, you'd have a lot of routes and destinations simply uh, cut off or charged uh, prohibitive 
prices for delivery. Some European countries have privatized their postal systems. Uh, how those worked out? Well, that's what happened there. <laughs> they uh, ended up servicing fewer people, charging more prices. Uh, it, it's worth noting that in some European systems, they don't have the same uh, aversion to public participation. Uh, so you can see in certain countries, uh, public uh, involvement in types of internet service, which have been uh, avoided in the U.S. So uh, when people refer to European examples, besides tending to ignore the, the service cuts that are implied by privatization, uh, they also tend to ignore the public sector's openness there in Europe to uh, expansion of uh, activities in areas that here have been walled off from the public sector. The Postal Service does lose money, um, but how big are the um, losses in the context of a federal budget? Is this something that we could easily afford? Well, the total uh, total costs have, I've seen around $80 billion and revenues more like 70 Now, those costs are inflated, but of course, the federal budget deficit is 900 and something billion uh, for the most recent years. So uh, it's, it's not a great amount in the grand scheme of things. In an important extent, those deficits for the service were, uh, I, I call it stipulated by fiat, by Congress. But in uh, a bill that was passed in 2006, the service was required to start booking payments to uh, its uh, retiree benefits fund. Uh, and failure to do that was uh, recorded as a deficit even though there's virtually no other portion of the federal government that finances retiree benefits that way. They were supposed to set the money aside in advance of the, the benefits. Yes. They, Pre-fund. Right, they're required to pre-fund. And when, if they fail to do that, then that's counted as uh, a deficit. Well, you'd almost think that was uh, done to make it look like they lose more money than they actually lose. Uh, yeah, well, that and a number of other things. There's a, a variety of constraints on the service that, basically make it impossible for them to even cover costs narrowly conceived. That's one of them. Another is that they're not allowed to increase their rates without approval by Congress. They're not allowed to close facilities without approval by Congress. Uh, they're not allowed to, which is probably for the best, they're not allowed to cut uh, wages and benefits without approval by Congress. So they have a number of what I call uh, walls closing in mandated by policy, which make it a completely unresolvable situation as things stand. I'm speaking with the economist Max Sawicki. Now, they could get into new lines of business. You've already mentioned some of those. But uh, one interesting one that people talk about now and then is uh, postal banking. Yes. What is that and what uh, what are the possibilities for that? Well, postal banking ran successfully for 40-some years. Uh, at its, uh, in its heyday in the late 30s, it was described uh, as the biggest bank in the USA. What it could do now is provide uh, what's often called plain vanilla, easily understood services in terms of mortgages and loans. It can provide checking and savings accounts at uh, much lower rates than people are forced to rely on uh, dealing with what are called banking deserts. Uh, there's a huge problem of what are called the unbanked, which is people without access to 
basic checking and savings account services that are forced to rely on uh, much more expensive alternatives like payday lenders. So you have a situation where, and this affects a huge amount of people. There's an FDIC report on this, which I cite in my uh, paper on the Center for Economic and Policy Research website, zepr.net. And uh, the problem of the unbanked, and there's a kind of parallel to that in terms of the spottiness of broadband availability, which is the other great area that I think is a logical place for the service to expand, which is to ensure absolutely universal access to broadband uh, in the U.S. Well, but Verizon and Charter Communications and all these people would not like that very much. No, of course not. I mean, that's historically been the problem. Logical places for public sector monopolies are blocked by private sector competitors, not because they do a better job, but because they rig the uh, political system to maintain their monopolies. So we have these tech monopolies, which are have been ravaging the economy and polluting the public discourse for failure of the government to extend the logical boundaries for what could be called the public communications infrastructure, the core of which has been the Postal Service. So what, what are the options for the future of the Postal Service? Is it either uh, some kind of more robust public uh, support or uh, privatization? And uh, is there a third option or is that pretty much it? My uh, maximum program is to have it be reincorporated into the federal government proper and uh, cover any uh, operating deficits with regular federal revenue, stop this absurd uh, situation of separating the retiree benefit funds from the rest of the federal government and uh, looking for ways to expand. There are short-term tweaks that could sort of keep it going, which the unions tend to focus on, which is understandable. So there's actually specific, fairly simple things that could keep it in its present uh, state of development. My hope for the paper was to talk more broadly about the potential for public ownership and use the communication infrastructure as the, the case in point and try to stretch people's idea of the tenable range of public sector activities. And how much worse has uh, DeJoy made things? Under self-financing, he can he has an argument for whatever he might do because there is the deficit. If you accept the constraints of the deficit, which is, as I said, to an important extent stipulated by law, which is a funny way for a deficit to arise, then he has a justification for contracting operations. Now, the timing of it, could certainly be questioned in terms of the election coming up, but he has pledged for what it's worth to uh, delay any such uh, rationalization till after the election. And there are court decisions that also prevent him. Now I had, uh, I was in a conversation with some actual postal workers who were also uh, democratic socialists of America activists. And they made the point that, The volume of mail as things stand, even under constrained economic circumstances, is absolutely huge compared to 
whatever bump in volume we could expect due to mail-in ballots. So uh, unless there's some further huge type of chicanery or malfeasance on the part of DeJoy and company, uh, there shouldn't be any problem with the service handling mail-in ballots. Now, how well they, how safely and efficiently they get counted is a different question, but that's not really on the Postal Service. Yeah, so they, they handle, what, 400 million pieces a day or something? Yeah. Another 100 million ballots? <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah. a quarter of a day's uh, traffic for them. You spread the likely number of mail-in ballots over a period of a couple of weeks, then it really pales in comparison. And when you say rationalization, the joy uh, has the option of rationalization, that means service cuts, right? That means the end of Saturday delivery. It means closing less used facilities. It means cutting off certain routes and destinations from delivery altogether, potentially. Although, of course, they'll, they'll never uh, tip that option in advance. They, they always pledge that they'll maintain universal service, but they'll redefine what universal service means. And they'll also go after the uh, labor force for something like the Postal Service. The, the biggest part of their costs are labor. And that means they would end up uh, attacking their own workforce. One way they have done that in the past is by increasing the ratio of temporary workers to uh, regular full-time workers, which, of course, has been done in other industries, too. And these, of course, are good working-class jobs, decent pay, good benefits. The unionized ones, yeah. Yeah, those would be the targets, though. Historically, by the way... uh, a haven for African-Americans and women uh, whose employment opportunities elsewhere were constricted, to say the least. So it has a, uh, a race and gender dimension to it, which is always worth uh, mentioning. And uh, not widely enough appreciated. Yes. That was The Economist, Max Sawicki, author of a paper on the Postal Service, which you can find on the web at CEPR.net. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Wonderful Hell, a teaser from a forthcoming album by War on Women. Loyal listeners may recall that their lead singer, Shauna Potter, was on this show in October 2017 to talk about being a feminist punk rocker. Like many institutions in this troubled society, higher education is in crisis. Public institutions have been starved by state legislatures for decades, and the pandemic-induced fiscal crisis is only making things worse. But it's not just public institutions. Smaller private colleges, even elite ones, are also facing crunches. 
Here's a case study, Oberlin College in Ohio. Like many small, expensive colleges, Oberlin is getting squeezed as costs rise and enrollments drop, a demographic problem that predates COVID-19. On taking office as Oberlin's president in 2017, Carmen Trulli Ambar invoked its historic commitment to social justice, but such commitments always betray their limits when capital and labor come into conflict. To address these financial challenges, the Oberlin administration has laid off low-wage workers and is essentially looking to bust the union. But the college has an endowment of almost $900 million. The layoffs aim to save about $2 million. What are the priorities here? Here with some answers is Kelly Grotke, an Oberlin alum who's active in the fight around those priorities. She's a historian who's also worked for many years in the world of securities valuation, a challenging business since there are so many interested parties trying to sell you a bill of goods. The role of someone like Kelly is to check the claims of those interested parties and try to come up with a fair price for things that, unlike conventional stocks and bonds, aren't openly traded on markets. She's well-equipped to traverse the dark shoals of private equity, which is central to the higher education melodrama. Kelly Grotke. Let's start with Oberlin, your uh, alma mater. Tell us about the size of their endowment and how they're treating their workers. On paper, at any rate, they have an endowment that is around $890 million, which is not, you know, in the scheme of things, it's not like Harvard, it's not like Yale, it's not like Stanford, but it's a pretty sizable asset. So when Oberlin announced at the beginning of this year, before the pandemic, that they were going to uh, lay off workers, it was kind of a mystery for those of us who knew at least about the size of the endowment. Um, endowments had been sort of figured as rainy day resources. But uh, Oberlin, in addition to the plans to to lay off workers and outsource them, these were unionized workers. So it looked like Oberlin was union busting, which got a lot of faculty, um, students, students formed a group called uh, Oberlin Against Austerity. A lot of the community protested. So there was almost an, like an immediate a response to this. It's a historically progressive college. Yeah, I was going to say, Oberlin likes to think of itself and is usually thought of by other people as a very enlightened, liberal, modern institution. Uh, was the first co-ed college in the country, right? Yeah, and the, the first to admit blacks. And uh, also uh, produced uh, Lena Dunham. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's a sore point with a lot of alums. Um, so anyway, uh, so they're, um, they got all this money and they're harassing union workers. Yeah. When this all came about, Oberlin had had uh, been facing a number of challenges that preceded um, Carmen Tully Ambar's arrival as president. The plans for restructuring and Oberlin, she came in with a management team um, named Stevens and began doing a thing that a lot of university presidents do, which is attempt to make the college viable in whatever way they, they think fit. And it usually is accompanied by a lot of managerial logic and rationalizations. And so that was opposed a little bit uh, initially. And the problem seems to have been that Oberlin was drawing on its endowment to meet its expenses. And I think the justification for outsourcing these unionized workers had to do with uh, the traditional kind of managerial cutting costs. And usually that, that kind of stuff, initially at least, falls on the most vulnerable workers in the system. And these are custodian and dining workers. They had been making, oh, at the top level in the 40s, 40,000 or so with benefits. So the plan to outsource initially looked like these workers were just going to be let go 
and they wouldn't get benefits. And in all likelihood, they'd be facing salaries that were fractions of what they had been earning. So this prompted a lot of protest from the community, from the students, from the faculty. And um, I got involved because of that effort amongst alums. Um, and when I began to look at what had happened to, to Oberlin, and especially given the size of its endowment, which I'd been tracking for a number of years, my reason for tracking it was their investment policies. So they were starting to invest um, pretty heavily in what are called alternative investments. And so I thought I could bring a different perspective to the effort to preserve these jobs and these benefits for people. And then when the pandemic hit, that seemed to be an even more urgent task, you know, because the plan, initial plan was that they'd be outsourced in the summer. And uh, at that point, at the early days of the pandemic, I mean, it was clear even then that whatever we were going to be going through in the, in the coming months was not going to be over by summer. And that just seemed particularly cruel. So a group of uh, us alums got together and formed a sort of ad hoc committee called the uh, Oberlin Alums for a Sustainable Endowment. And in a really, um, a really remarkable act of good timing, we sent our letter to the president and the administration as a whole and the trustees. I think it was on the 15th of March. Um, so, and as you know, we all went into a kind of state of emergency on, I think, what it was, the 17th or so? Yeah, that was yeah. about the last day of normal life, I think. Yeah, it kind of went over like a lead balloon, I suppose. But um, <laughs> they were dealing with a lot that's legit. But in our letter, we basically framed, you know, some of the benefits that the workers stood to lose, like health care, as a, a kind of contemporary social justice challenge right? That this is our social justice struggle. And especially in the midst of a pandemic, depriving people of that benefit. And we didn't know it was coming. Les Leopold was uh, instrumental in setting up a, a petition and a drive to get alums who were against the outsourcing to commit to not to donate to, uh, to Oberlin until we got some concessions on this. And one of the things we were asking for is for somebody a targeted person to address questions people had about the school's finances and its endowment. And we offered a confidential and cost-free valuation of the endowment. And we, we reasoned that, you know, okay, there's probably some things about the situation we don't understand. We're not privy to the internal workings of the college. And so the fact that they were outsourcing these workers and unionized workers, no less, seemed initially like a kind of call for help. The alumni are one of the resources of the, of the, of the college. Even faculty, from what I was hearing from people, because I'm in, in touch with a, a number of faculty, and some have been particularly active in, uh, in opposing what the administration has planned. But they were saying that one had, had basically set up a comparison of the stated returns they could find from Oberlin's endowment with a, an index fund and found that Oberlin's endowment seemed to be doing worse than a standard index fund. Oberlin has, like many, many colleges, I've, I've looked at a number of endowments now just to get a good comparison, and a lot of them in their investment policies are adopting one or another version of the so-called Yale model. And that involves a pretty heavy proportion of investments in so-called alternatives. So you're talking about private equity, you're talking about hedge funds. 
Yeah, now this Yale model, Swenson, David Swenson, the manager responsible for that. But he, 20, 25 years ago, got into this, right? Yale was one of the pioneers of putting university money into these so-called alternative investments. And Yale has done very well by that. But, you know, how reproducible is that model? I think at one point the stated returns were about 30% for Yale, which was phenomenal. But as far as its reproducibility... Uh, one of the alums I spoke with actually trained under Swenson and respects him a lot, but told me flat out he doesn't think that this model and, and Swenson's talents um, were replicable. Swenson basically said that himself, right? He said, don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> well, the problem is a lot of people are trying at home, and they're they're doing it with the endowments, which are a lot of the funds come from alums, not exclusively, but a lot of it. And I don't think there's a, a sufficient financial literacy amongst the faculty and the alums about the ways these things are invested. When we all went through the 2008 uh, financial crisis, it was all like, oh, these are very complex. So it kind of created a, a climate of non-understanding, I think. I mean, and yes, there are legitimate complex aspects to them. But if you look at it functionally, it's fairly clear what happened. It was laid out pretty well in the movie The Big Short. But I think a lot of people just don't really know what kinds of questions to ask. They don't understand the consequences of the investment strategies. Well, and the investment bankers like it that way. (laughs) They want it to be as opaque as possible. Absolutely. And like even amongst administrators, like presidents of universities, people who are on the board of trustees, not even all of these people are necessarily familiar enough with the investment approaches to to know what to ask. I mean, I think there's often a, just a relationship of trust, right? Not necessarily one of transparency. And this becomes important because there isn't transparency, because a lot of these alternative investments are very lightly regulated, if they're regulated at all. They're often self-regulated. Private equity has been a particular concern. Well, let's talk about private equity as an investment class. How do they make their money? You know, they, they supposedly have all this magic sauce that enables them to earn spectacular returns, especially in these times of low interest rates. Everyone, or like zero interest rates, everyone wants that magic of private equity. Yeah. How do they make their money? And what is the actual record of, of that private equity as an asset class? As to the record, it's, it's actually kind of hard to tell. There's one guy who's at Oxford. Uh, Ludovic Falapu, who recently published a piece. He's been studying private equity for well over a decade. And the problem with studying it, or one of them, is that partly because they're not very regulated, there's not the kinds of exchanges where you could get the kind of collective information or data that you would need to evaluate it. Let's just stop and uh, emphasize that point. Like with a stock, it's constantly priced every second of the day of the trading day, right? So you know exactly what a stock is trading at. But these assets you don't really know. You just have to trust the word of the sponsor. <laughs> yeah, essentially, I, I I think that's what it basically amounts to. So there, there's a kind of ballooning relationship of possibly misplaced trust because you're you know these people get incredible salaries, and as to how they make their money, somebody I know who who had a family investment kind of a foundation kind of thing invested in these kinds of things. It was done quite a while ago, but it was very similar in structure to the private equity, right? This fund was set up to provide funds for grandchildren to go to college. Now, because of the terms under which it was governed, and let's just say it it existed for 20 years, and let's just 
say that maybe there was like a million dollars in it. Because of the fees that have been taken out, the expenses associated with the, the fund, there's been no appreciation in capital. This raised some alarm bells for me, right? This is a time when the stock markets have been, you know, booming for decades. Oh, yeah. And, and the Ober a lot of the Oberlin faculty are like, hey, what's going on here? Right. Why aren't we benefiting from this kind of stuff? Now, the contracts, there are very few that have been leaked. I think um, Eve Smith and Naked Capitalism have done some good stuff on this, particularly with pension funds, um, the Calper scandal. Um, and the reason it was a scandal was because the contracts basically seemed to award a huge amount in fees to the managers of these things. And regardless of the underlying performance of the assets, and they would get a percentage of that too, but most of the money in made in private equity, or at least a very significant part of it, is made by fees. Yeah, no, and the standard is what, 2 and 20, 2% of the assets under management, 20% of the profits. Yeah. And, you know, that this amounts to, just to give a sort of more pragmatic cast, I've been looking at, for the, over the past 10 years, so, so in higher education, just from, I haven't done a, like a comprehensive study of it, but the fees, I would say, run into the billions. And this is just off university endowments. We're not talking yep. about pension funds. Yep. Nope, not even pension funds. I mean, I think Trump is trying to sneak through something that would allow more investment in private equity for pension funds, which to me just looks like they're trying to rescue a troubled industry. The returns don't seem to be all that from Fallopu's research at Oxford. The fees are expensive, really, really expensive compared to like a standard index fund or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you, you could know. put money in like a Vanguard S&P index fund. It's practically free. <laughs> I'm speaking with the historian and securities analyst Kelly Grotke. Well, private equity, of course, um, makes a lot of its money by disemploying workers, cutting salaries. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, talk a bit about <laughs> where the money comes from in private equity. The best book on this, and much better than anything I could ever say, is Eileen Applebaum and Rosemary Batts' Private Equity at Work. And in a nutshell, that book tells you about the negative social effects of private equity. It changes the nature of work. It changes the nature of compensation. Private equity, yes, yeah, some of them, I'm, I'm not making individual judgments on performance here, but it's quite, quite clear that there have been some spectacular examples of failure, like Toys R Us, so, well, a whole bunch of the retail sector has been ravaged by private equity. Yeah, and they're they're ravaging healthcare too. You know, I was really dismayed to find Elizabeth Warren's daughter works in private equity in the medical sector. If you read the um, Applebaum and Bat's book, it's hard to come away with anything other than the impression that one of the reasons our healthcare system is so precarious is because have, private equity is heavily invested in it. It's making everything more expensive, and this is one of their points. That this you know raises the prices and lowers the quality of, of overall life, lowers the dignity of work. That's one of the reasons we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world, one of the most dysfunctional ones. And then I could just step back and look at this endowment system. We have you know public universities like City University of New York. Yeah. Very small endowment. You know, broke basically, and now yeah. with the enrollment crisis, even broker than usual. Uh, and then you have uh, Yale and Harvard with their thirty and forty billion dollar endowments. I believe Harvard spends something like a hundred million dollars a year on investment management. And then, of course, you have public universities, some of which are 
have pretty large endowments and some of which don't at all. So I mean, this is really the endowment is like a have and have not situation in higher education. Yeah. The landscape is is really, really diverse. You've got the public universities and their financing is complicated. And Chris Newfield has really detailed a lot of that for the, the public systems. Private systems, I mean, some places don't have an endowment at all or a very negligible one. Um, Bennington's is very small, for example. And yeah, you do have a radical disparities, radically distribution of uh, resources. And some colleges are, I think it's pretty clear that some are not going to survive. And if you consider education to be a kind of public good, whether it's in private institutional or public institutional form, then I, I think that there's a good opportunity here to kind of rethink the purposes of it. I mean, one of the things I've been concerned about as a person who who has a doctorate in history is that a lot of the humanities have been particularly negatively affected by austerity measures. They're not profitable. They're not making money. And, you know, at a place like Oberlin, which is a liberal arts college, I mean, it's only a matter of time, I think, before the problems start to creep up the food chain. Well, you know, I wonder about places like Oberlin, Middlebury, expensive, small private colleges uh, yeah. in a time when a lot of people are broke. Do they have a oh, future? Yeah. Why would a student want to pay a lot of money to go to one of these small elite private institutions when you can save a lot of money by going to a public one, which has more resources in a lot of cases? Absolutely. But the thing about Oberlin and a lot of these other places, too, is that when I went there, the tuition was much lower. But Oberlin in particular has always been very good about admitting a lot of people who just couldn't pay full price. You know, so this is part of their budget, too. Um, it's one of their missions to support students who can't pay the full ticket. And actually, from what I hear from faculty, they're pretty good at it. I have a, a deep sentimental attachment to Oberlin. Um, so, you know, it's, it is an elite place. And I would say that, like, I'll just speak to Oberlin because I, you know, that's a place I, I knew at one time very well, is that it was a place where you could explore different issues without it being a credentialing thing. There, there seemed to be a kind of notion of education, not just as a credential, but as, as something just sort of inherently worth doing. And I, I, there are problems with elitism. And I guess I'm just not answering your question very well. <laughs> what to say about that? I mean, it is a problem. I guess if there's a, a general response I could give, it's like maybe it's time to rethink a lot of the way our education system is structured. I mean, I've lived in Europe. Um, the system there is very different. They have, you know, different universities and different colleges and whatnot. They don't have a lot of for-profit places, although that's changing. And education is basically much, much lower cost. When I lived in Finland, um, I got called into the tax office because I was making payments on my student loans. And they called me into the tax office because they actually couldn't understand how I would be paying this much into a student loan. Wow. You know? Yeah, no, seriously. I, I was worried. I was a little scared. Like, oh, geez, the Finnish tax office, they're really relaxed compared to here. <laughs> I missed the deadline, actually, because I was used to the April 15th and they have a different deadline. And I was like, oh, God, this is going to be a nightmare. And they were like, OK, 
well, it's just bring it in when you have it. <laughs> like, I love this place. <laughs> but they literally, they, they couldn't understand. They thought I had a mortgage on a property or something. There are different ways to do things. I mean, we, we're operating under a lot of severe political restraints right now. And so there are limits to what one could do. But that's, to me, that seems a, a good reason for kind of thinking about this stuff in advance when opportunities might arise. For rethinking the way that places like Oberlin invest their endowments. I mean, one of the other reasons politically why you'd be concerned about such heavy concentrations in alternative investments is that, say, there's a big campaign nationwide about fossil fuel divestment. If you basically divest yourself of like publicly traded equities, that's one thing. Universities probably don't even have much of a difficulty with that, depending on where they are. Oberlin did it, at least with its publicly traded equities. But when you're invested in all of these alternatives, unless you see those contracts and the specific investments that are underlying those contracts, you can't tell if anybody's divested or not. So you could theoretically, you could maintain a whole bunch of investments in the you know fossil fuel industry without revealing that. That limits political opposition to certain kinds of investment strategies. So yeah, that's it's a good thing. I'd say generally the whole uh, aura of secrecy that surrounds private equity investments and hedge funds as well is really yeah. antithetical to um, the ethic of a university or a college. I agree with that completely. And one of the big things that's come out of my examination of the endowment issue generally, and uh, particularly at Oberlin, is that I think the secrecy ends up in, in increasingly autocratic managerial styles. And, and I say that because I've been close with some of the faculty and the alums and the union guys. We meet with them sometimes too, just to hear what's going on. Uh, Chris Howell did a great piece in the Oberlin Review about how the administration did not deal in any way with the union in a manner that could be considered legitimate collective bargaining in good faith. What the college was basically doing at first was saying, we're going to do this, right? Then they got some opposition. And yeah, to some extent, this is how it works, right? They decide to do things, they get opposition, things get reworked. But through the whole process of the summer, while the pandemic was reaching a peak for a while, they weren't really making any concessions. And the union guys um, who, are, who are really have been doing amazing work in, on behalf of, of the, the workers, they've basically said that there's been no real give and take. And that's a problem, you know, because if administrations are behaving more like corporations within this college, that's making them not institutions that serve a public good and, and, and a public need for education. I think arguably we have that need ever more today <laughs> than even 20 years ago. It's changing the character of Oberlin. Um, Oberlin had always traditionally been a very faculty-run place. So when I first entered into this issue, I was actually, I had to be brought up to speed. My memories of the place were of a very faculty-run place. In fact, it had that reputation. I remember talking with Leon Botstein and he was saying, oh, you know, Oberlin's kind of a difficult place. The faculty, you know, always oppose what the administrations are doing. It's a hard place to govern. <laughs> but not anymore, sadly. While some faculty did oppose these measures, by and large, um, they accepted the austerity logic. And I don't know if that's because they feel more kin 
to the administrative and trustee class than they do to the grounds workers? I'm not really sure, but they've they've been substantially depoliticized. My concern with the endowments, and just given my background in working in security evaluation, it's not clear to me that they always are in a position to even know what questions to ask. And the autocratic tendency is increased because the secrecy that surrounds these investments is just kind of allowed to stand. So it's like, uh, we know best, so shut up. Basically, yeah. And, and you know, these people get high salaries, right? And part of the reason, if you believe the meritocracy view, that they do is because they're smart and good at what they do. And I'm sure a lot of them are. But one, uh, one person, like I was raising these concerns about the endowment, and there's a bit of skepticism, I think, on, on the part of the faculty, because I, one guy, so I was told, basically said, oh, you know, I'm sure she, she means well in investigating things, but you should just really talk with the guy who's doing the investments. He's a wonderful person. And <laughs> I'm like, okay, that may be. You know, I'm sure he's a wonderful person. But the fact is, that doesn't get you anywhere in understanding why Oberlin, um, in particular, finds itself in this condition. It has $890 million on paper, right? Yes, colleges are going through tremendously hard times. And, and I have great sympathy for the things that, that colleges are having to rethink, uh, you know, that the professors that all have to, like, go online. These, these are enormous challenges. But the, the thing at the center of it, the, the kind of financial viability issue. Um, I don't want that to get lost in the midst of this, because I really think that the the secrecy surrounding alternative investments, the lack of financial literacy on the part of people who might be interested in figuring out these things out, all contribute to this kind of status quo, which becomes very managerial, very top down. Like Oberlin is, they they have a a hiring freeze, no surprise. They've frozen pension contributions. Francois Furstenberg has said that basically the same things that happening at Johns Hopkins, which has an even larger endowment. You know, so when it comes to resources that a college has and very real sort of fiscal challenges, it just makes you wonder why so many billions of dollars over the past decade have gone into the pockets of fund managers. Now, here you've got a larger social problem, right? In a much larger social problem that we've we're we're in a society that's experiencing an incredible um, disparities in wealth and privilege, and <clears throat> what colleges are doing, at least some of them, a good number of them, is enriching this class of the finance sector. This is incredible wealth, and it's time to ask. Like apparently, this is merit, right? They get paid for being good at what they do. But you look around and you see the kind of challenges that are going on at Oberlin, or the kind of challenges that our country is facing generally right now, and you kind of wonder, we're in bad shape. What's gone wrong? And so I just want to poke at this a bit, because if people are forced to, in our town even, small town in Essex, or people are relying on food banks, right? Private equity guys are still going to get their fees throughout all of this. And now our country is hurting, and the, the you know... The students are hurting at Oberlin. Their, their lives have been upended as well. And is it right that so much wealth flows into their hands, particularly at this point, when so many are suffering? That was Kelly Grotke, an Oberlin alum active in the fights around the college's endowment and the treatment of its janitors and dining hall workers.
That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Me and My Dog from Boy Genius. I love this little subgenre of music, but it's yet another reason I worry I'm going soft. Till next week, bye. Together, but I can breathe.